have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to uh, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 21 in chapter 3 marks a turning point in the book of Romans. Up to that point, Paul had been painting a portrait of the true condition of humanity and God's response to it in its sinful and fallen nature God's wrath or anger is a theme that runs through the first two chapters of this book. He's angry. That's not something we typically like to think about. We don't want to be faced with a God who is wrathful, and yet the scriptures are filled with passages like this, where God is depicted as angry. He's angry. Tonight we're going to consider briefly three things in regards to his anger. Why he's angry, what he does about it, and how he does it. Why God is angry, what he does about it, and how he does it. First, why he's angry. Why is God angry? When we speak of God being angry or wrathful, it doesn't mean he's emotionally cranky doesn't mean he's temperamental. It doesn't mean he has a short fuse where he could blow at any time. God's wrath is his opposition to that which is wrong. It's his opposition to that which is evil and unjust. God's wrath is his opposition to sin. Now the idea of God being a God of wrath is offensive to some people today. They'll say, why can't we just emphasize God's love and goodness? Why all this talk about God's wrath and anger? Why do we have to go there at all? Well, to pit God's wrath against his love and goodness shows you don't really know how the heart works. It's love and goodness that make you angry at sin and injustice. Becky Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, writes about this. She was watching a couple of her friends sink into drug abuse and destroy their lives. 
And she reflected on that time in her life where she was in the throes of trying to minister to them. She writes this, How did I feel? I was grieved and sickened to see the wasted potential. But I also felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them. To say, can't you see? Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You become less and less yourself every time I see you. I wasn't angry because I hated them. I was angry because I cared. If I hadn't loved them, I could have walked away. The fact is that anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. And if I, a flawed and sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. If God were not angry over how we are destroying ourselves, then he would not be good and he certainly wouldn't be loving. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is And the final form of hate is indifference. The reason why God is angry at sin and evil is that it's destroying the world he created and loves. If he wasn't so full of love and goodness for this world that he made, he wouldn't care. The more loving you are, the easier you get angry at sin and evil. So in fact, God's anger and his wrath are signs of his love for this world. Second, what he does about it. What does he do about this anger that he feels that's ultimately rooted in his love and his goodness? What does he do about this? Well, let's think about it this way. When someone wrongs you deeply... When someone hurts you, when they gossip about you, when they ruin your reputation, or they, they take advantage of you financially, there are only two possible ways to respond to that. And both of them entail suffering. When someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you in some way, there's only two possible ways to respond to that, and both of them entail suffering. One way is to get back at them, to retaliate. They inflicted a hurt on you, you in turn inflict a hurt on them. You make them suffer. That's one possible way to respond when somebody hurts you. You make them suffer. The other way to respond when someone hurts you is to forgive. But when you forgive, you're the one that suffers. You bear up in yourself the loss of the reputation, the wound of someone taking advantage of you. You bear the debt in yourself. You suffer when you forgive. These are the only two possible ways to respond when somebody wounds you, when somebody harms you. You either make them suffer, you retaliate, or you forgive. But when you do that, you're the one that suffers by choosing to take up in yourself the wound that was inflicted upon you. You can't just will it away. You can't will it away. You can't just let it go. The debt has to be paid through suffering. The same is true with God. 
God can't just will away evil and injustice. He can't just let it go. The debt has to be paid. And the same is true with him. He has two options. Both of them entail suffering. One possibility is to retaliate on the perpetrators, which is us. Make us suffer for the wrong that we have inflicted on him. That's one possible way. The other possibility is to forgive. On the cross, God is doing something cosmically. What we have to do individually in order to forgive a sin. On the cross, God is doing something cosmically. What we have to do individually if we want to forgive a sin. He's paying the debt. The debt of his own justice. Instead of retaliating against the perpetrators, us, on the cross, God himself bears the loss. He pays the debt. He suffers. So somebody says, I don't like this idea of, of God being a God of, of wrath or, or that he's an angry God. The response is, well, if you don't have an angry God, you don't have a loving God. Because it's his love and his goodness that make him angry at sin and injustice. If somebody says, well, I don't like this idea that the debt has to be paid, why can't God just let it go? You can't will away injustice. The debt has to be paid. So let's look thirdly at how he does this. One other comment that you'll hear from modern people today is, is they'll say, one thing I really don't, I hate is that God needs blood to be appeased. Why all this talk about blood and sacrifice? Why does it have to be so gory and graphic? Some of you probably remember the name um, Homer, the, the author, not the cartoon character. Homer was the legendary Greek epic poet who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Embedded within the storylines of these two mammoth works is the story of Iphigenia, Agamemnon and Clytemnestra's daughter. Agamemnon was the commander of the Achaeans, and as the story is told, he was a bit loose with his tongue and ended up offending the goddess Artemis. Agamemnon needed safe passage to Troy, but Artemis refused to give it to him because of what he had done to her, and so she refused to give him safe passage unless he sacrificed his daughter Iphigenia. Agamemnon labored over this decision, but in the end decided to sacrifice her in order to appease Artemis. Artemis saw Iphigenia's blood and allowed Agamemnon's safe passage to Troy. These are common tales and many people react to the blood of Christianity because of this. But the blood of Christ is the complete opposite of this. The text says that God presented himself, his own blood, as a sacrifice. He doesn't demand your blood. He doesn't demand the blood of your children. Now, I know the doctrine of the Trinity is a very complex concept. We, we can't get our minds around that one God, three persons. It boggles the mind. But right now, the doctrine of the Trinity is very helpful for us. Very helpful. 
Because the Bible says that God presented himself in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, as the sacrifice. It's his blood that appeases God. It's not yours. It's not the blood of your children. Jesus' blood is unique among literary history. Nowhere else do you have a story like this one. We are saved not by our own blood, not the blood of kin. We are saved by the blood of Christ. Justice has been fully satisfied through the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's, let's take these truths in and let's let them do their work in us. God is angry. Rather than reacting negatively to that, why don't we ask why? He's angry because he cares so much, because he's good, because he's loving. We should find encouragement in that, that we are dealing with a God who cares, not one who stands on the sidelines in indifference. We have a God who, instead of retaliating against the perpetrators who have offended him, we have a God who bears in himself the loss, the debt. He doesn't demand your blood. He doesn't demand the blood of your children to be appeased. He offers his own blood. This God is worthy of our thinking, our affection, our singing, our service, and our attention. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who loves so deeply that you do get angry. For without your anger and love, we would truly be hopeless and helpless. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross where you chose to suffer in our place. We thank you for presenting your own blood before the Father. May the cross continue to shape our worship, our living, our thinking, our talking, that its power may be truly seen in the lives of the redeemed. Lord, we cannot get to the um, bottom of the profundity of what you have done for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. We see the collision of your love and justice there. Dealing with sin and evil and all of its terrors and horrors. We see that graphically depicted in a tortured Christ. But we also see the enormity of your love for us. For it is Jesus, the perfect substitute, the sacrificial lamb in our place. So Lord, I pray that this would cause us to raise our voices loud. To declare your praises. To let our lives be a light pointing to the hope of the cross. Pray, Lord, that 
this community of worshipers would bear testimony with great clarity to what you have done for us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.